If you have a Bible, I would ask, ask that you open up to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses, beginning at verse 11 today. If you need a Bible to look at, you can use a blue one. You're more than happy or more than welcome to, to look at a blue Bible. It should be in the front of you. It's on page 976, 976 in Ephesians chapter 2. Less than two years ago, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, an African-American man named George Floyd was killed by a white police officer while he was restrained after passing a $20 counterfeit bill. This helped, we understand that, this helped fuel BLM riots throughout not only the United States but the world. Treacherous time. Ten years ago, in Sanford, Florida, a black teenager named Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in an upscale neighborhood after a physical struggle with a Hispanic security guard. On March 3rd, 1991, after a high-speed chase, a man named Rodney King, a black man, was pulled over because he was impaired. He was driving impaired, and four police officers from the LAPD viciously beat him, which was caught on, at the time, cell phone on tape. I don't know if it was on, off a phone, or it was probably at that time a camcorder. The four officers were then brought to trial in 1992, almost a year later, for using excessive force. On April 29th, three officers were acquitted after watching what had happened. They were acquitted, and one was more or less the jury failed to reach a verdict. So all four walked. Within hours of the acquittal, I mean hours, Riots began in Los Angeles, California, lasting six days. By the time law enforcement, National Guard, Marine troops, and the U.S. Army restored order, there were 63 lives that had been lost. 63. 2,000, 2, excuse me, 2,383 injuries, more than 7,000 fires resulting in damages to over 3,100 businesses, many in Korean neighborhoods. So can you get the picture here? The races are against each other. During the last days, or excuse me, during the first days of the riot, Rodney King himself made a television appearance, and the first thing that he said when he was being filmed, his words were, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? Things are now as they were then. And I'm not only speaking about two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but I'm also speaking about the first century in which this Scripture was written. An historian writes, a study of history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, or, national, or narrow nationalisms our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. Now, we might say, come on, that's, that's not the case. Yes, it is the case. Racial hatred has gone on, no matter what Whoopi Goldberg says, for many, many years. The Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. That's what a good Jew would think. 
The common motto was, and I quote, the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was, it was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. If a Jew married a Gentile, on that day a funeral service would be held for the Jew because they were dead. The historian goes on to say the Gentiles, even apart from their animosity for the Jews, had their own parochial hatreds for anyone not like them. Plato, everybody likes Plato, right? The great Greek philosopher. Plato said that barbarians, anyone who was not a Greek, barbarians were his enemies by nature. The Roman Livy confirmed this in his day, saying, the Greeks wage a truceless war against people of other races, against barbarians. Now, remember, you're considered a barbarian if you are not a Jew. And, of course, this was eminently true of the imperialistic Romans. The collision of Gentile-Jewish exclusiveness was monumental. The Gentiles were dogs to Jewish parlance, and the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race in Gentile terms. I want to come back to Rodney King's question. Can we, can we get along? And I'm going to lay my cards out on the table. Without Christ, no. No. This morning, we're going to concentrate on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where Paul concentrates particularly on the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. And specifically, the, the name of the sermon title is From Separation to Reconciliation. He's speaking to the Gentiles in the Ephesian church, but I guarantee you, the Jewish believers were hearing this as well. But this is specifically to the Gentiles, to us, we might say. Well, what was the reason for the Gentile separation? The separation. Another word you could, a, a synonym here, you could put alienation in. Alienation or separation. Well, the answer is not social, it's not cultural, it's spiritual. And this morning, we will see how everyone's separation, which includes the Jews, but more specifically in this passage, the Gentiles, separation from God was overcome by reconciliation. We'll begin by noticing the separation. Separation, verses 11 and 12. Now, we spoke about last week, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, and Paul had shown, and I hope we understand, that every person who had ever lived, except Christ Himself, well, I should rephrase that. Adam and Eve were not born spiritually dead, but they quickly became that when they fell in the Garden of Eden. Everyone after that has been born spiritually dead without Christ. Everyone is dead in sin. And to remedy that situation, they must personally turn to Christ. By grace, we're saved through faith. That's how we're made alive. He writes, beginning in verse 11, this is what Paul writes. He said, therefore, remember. So, here they are. He's just heard. They have just heard verses 1 through 10. Remember, remember, remember how you've been saved. You were dead in sin. Now you're alive. You're alive in Christ. Remember this. But remember what it was like without Christ. And remember that through Christ you have been saved. Now, in the Old Testament, again, I love the Old Testament because it is, it's gritty. It's real life. The Old Testament people were always called to remember. 
Remember what God has done. Remember how, what He has done for you. In Exodus 13, they are already called to remember. And when they forgot, you know what happened when they forgot about what God had done? They headed straight downhill. Spiritually, straight downhill. They had to remember what He had been faithful, but they'd slip directly into idolatry. Many people can have a spiritual I know I'm this way a lot, and, I, and I'm sorry I'm admitting this. I have to be adjusted all the time. God, what have you done for me lately? I'm, <laughs> I, I can start with look back, look back, look back. That's why it's important, folks. When God does something great in your life, write it down. Because when you get old like me, you might forget. But also, when your kids look through your things, when you're on your deathbed, look what God did. Man, God was good. God is good. Write it down. Write it down. That's one of the reasons why Christ commands the church to participate in the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember. Now, the Gentiles in verse 11, they, they needed to be told, they needed to remember what it was like. And make no mistake, Paul understood that the Jewish members of the Ephesian church were listening too. Look at verse 11, the full of verse 11 now. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision, Literally, one word, the foreskin. It's what they're called, the foreskin. By what was called the, the circumcision, the Jews, the Jewish sign of the covenant, which God began in Genesis 17 when He called Abraham to circumcise not only Himself, but every male that was in His camp. I'm not going to get crass, but man, that... A 99-year-old man, that had to hurt. That had to hurt. But it was the sign of the covenant, which is still a sign for the Jews today. And Paul continues, which is made in the flesh by hands. Circumcision, in a, in a sense, was a sign of God's people being cut off or cut away from the evilness of the world. They were separated. They were separated. They were set apart. They had been part of the Jewish covenant, God's promises. And those outside the covenant were referred to as the uncircumcised. A biblical illustration. How many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath? Oh, come on. Almost everybody has heard that story, right? Come on, raise your hand up. You don't need to raise your hand up. You've heard that story. Well, what happened? Goliath, the Philistine, had come out, and he had just been ragging on the Israeli troops, trying to goad them into coming out. Well, who's your God? Your God's nothing. Your God is nothing. Come out, fight me. If your boy, your man, he kills me, we'll be your servants. If I kill you, you'll be our servants. And what did David do? David showed up, this little shepherd dude, his older brothers in the army, and David, here's Goliath, and he, what is this uncircumcised, why are you do this uncircumcised man is doing this to the armies of Israel? My words, not his. Let me at him. Let me at him. It was the same as a cuss word almost. Uncircumcised. You're outside of God's covenant favor. Continuing in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Now, I asked Jessica to leave this verse up because I want, us, I want this to be up while I talk about it. Look at the verse. Gentiles, all people who are not from the sons of Israel had five disadvantages. You could say five ways of separation, five things in there that Gentiles were, especially in Ephesus, but we, our neighbors, our families, those who are not in Christ, we can say the same of them. The first thing, they have no hope of a Messiah. They have no hope of a Christ, which Paul writes, he was, they were separated from Christ. Of course, there were converts. There were proselytes, Gentiles who came into, the Judea, into Judaism, but generally, Gentiles had no knowledge that a Savior was coming. They had no knowledge that they even needed a Savior, and they didn't care either. Let's put it that way. They didn't care. Do those who are close to you, do they know that they need Christ? Do they know that they need a Savior? They might not. The second thing, Gentiles were stateless. It means they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel was a nation under God. Don't even think the United States is a nation under God. It might say that on our coins. No. Israel was a theocracy. God ruled them. God ruled them. And the Gentiles were outside of God's kingship. Third, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, we've gone through this before, and we've gone through it many, many times. When God, does God ever lie? No, He doesn't. When God makes a promise, He keeps His promise. All right, so they were in a covenant the Lord God was in a covenant with Israel. God had bound Himself unconditionally to bring blessings upon and through Israel. What? What are you saying? Well, first through the, through the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham, he was told, through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. And then he promised Abraham, wherever you walk in this, in this land, I will give to you. God kept that promise, and He continues to keep the promise. The Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, David promised, you will have a person from your loins, from your seed, will be on the throne of Israel forever. Guess why Jesus is called a son of David? Ding, 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 ding. Gentiles had none of these. They had none of these promises, which leads us to number four. They were hopeless, having no hope. This one hits home to me today. When life came to an end, it was done. That's what they thought. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. I'm going to live life to the fullest. There's nothing after this. I'm going to live it up. It's done. Yeah, they, they had made up religions. They had false religions. And the fifth reason for separation was they were without God in the world. There were plenty of false gods. In fact, there was probably a God on every corner. There was a God in every city, a God in every nation. But the true God, they didn't have Him. Didn't have Him. But those gods were ultimately useless. Paul's describing a pagan society. It's a pagan society. It's where we are without God in this world. When's the last time we heard of Bakersfield as a pagan society? I'll admit, before I was in Christ, I was a pagan. 
Sproul writes, we tend to use the softer term of secular. Secular rather than the term pagan, for we usually think of pagan countries as those with no historic conversion to Christianity, which are not part of the Judeo-Christian culture. But what we have in America and the Western world is a post-Christian society. The world is separated from Christ. It's separated. It's a world that lives for itself, usually trying to distract itself from the terror of being all, this is all there is. And that's terrifying to someone who does not have Christ, who does not know where they're going. R. Kent Hughes writes, and I quote, those apart from Christ typically wrap their lives around things and refuse to think about the ultimate reality. The escape can be very intellectual on one hand, and on the other, an eternal Nintendo game. As a believer who has found hope, he says, I cannot imagine living without God. This Gentile dilemma, this separation, which is ultimately the world's dilemma, it is separation from God. Simply that. And because the world is alienated from God, they're ultimately separated from each other. If you're not in touch, in tune, in Christ, you're separated. And you know what that leads to? It leads from separation to our community, our friends, our family. If they're not in Christ, we are separated. And the ultimate results, it actually leads to racism. It's the basis for all the hatred that we see between nations and people groups. And if people are separated from God and His Christ, how can we get along? How can we get along? We won't and we don't. But the remedy that is today's text gives for the Gentiles in Ephesus is for the same for us. And the same for all, for all time. Reconciliation. That's the remedy. Reconciliation. Just as it was in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Remember that? You're dead in your trespasses and sin. You have all these things going against you. And then he said in verse 4, but God. But God. Well, he says almost the same thing. He has to tell everybody the bad news first. Just as the words we have read in, in verses 11 and 12, they're bad news. They're bad. We're separated, or people are separated. But verse 13 tells us, but now. He uses that word again. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near. To where once we weren't even in the same zip code, we're brought into the throne room. And that is probably a bad analogy because we're not separated by miles from God. We're separated because of sin. It's not miles. It's sin. How are we reconciled? How are we brought near? By the sacrificial death of the Son. Both Jews and the Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 14, for He Himself is our peace. He Himself. If you have a pen, if you write in your Bibles, if you underline or if you highlight, He Himself. It's up front. It can't be mixed. Remember back a few months when we focused on what the Messiah, what His name was, His names? I'll help you out. I'll, I'll, I'll give you some hints. It was in Isaiah 9-6, and we're going to see Isaiah 9-6 on, on the screen, and you're going, oh, no, not again, not again. That was the longest four weeks of my life. 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And this was written by Isaiah 700 years or so before Christ came to the earth, and it was written to the children of Israel who were under a covenant with God. And because the Gentiles as well as the believing Jews are now part of the blessings that were promised concerning the, com the coming Messiah, they're in the new covenant Gentiles and Jews who believe, completed Jews, they get this. They get this. Prince of Peace. Now remember, Linus in his blanket. He's carrying his blanket. We've all seen it at Charlie Brown Christmas. And he ends with this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he's pleased. Peace. But I don't feel very peaceful. You have peace. You have it. You've been given it. Peace can and is defined as well-being. When it comes to salvation, when it includes salvation, the source and giver of that peace is God alone. God alone. When people are at peace with one another, it means that they are in harmony with each other. You see this in James 3.18. Throughout the Scriptures, peace speaks of wholeness. You're whole. You're complete. Yahweh is called the God of peace in 1 Corinthians 14.33, and Christ is known as the mediator of peace in Romans 5.1. Verse 14 explains how Jesus accomplished this. He said, for He Himself, again, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His, in his flesh the dividing line, wall, excuse me, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I'm going to do some Christian math. It's not the new math, it's not whatever, but it, this is Christian math. This is math from Ephesians 2.14. One plus one equals one. What? Jews, one. Gentiles, one. And Christ made one. That's what Paul's saying. The church talking about the church. Well, what's the dividing line of, or dividing wall of hostility? You know, I mean, inquiring minds want to know, right? What's the dividing wall? What, what is he talking about? Well, he's speaking of the Jewish temple, and an historian helps us here, and I'm going to quote him. In the temple, there were areas that had their specific function. The heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies. That was the awesome place. Only one time a year did a, did a priest go into that place. He goes on, he said, that's where the throne of God was established and where the atonement was made on the Day of Atonement. Again, once a year. The only human being that ever dared enter the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and only after rigorous cleansing rites that prepared him for this once-in-a-year venture into the inside. All right, remember this too. When he went in, he had a bell on his, on his, what is it, his cloak? It's not his cloak, his robe, and he had a rope tied around his ankle. So as if he dropped dead in the Holy of Holies, they could pull him out. We think, no, that can't be right. Let the two names, Nadab and Abihu, remember them. 
Outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place to which there was access for believers. They could come that far and no further. The dividing wall does not refer to the curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. It's true that on the moment of the atonement by Christ on the cross, when Christ died, when He said it is finished and He bowed His head, the curtain which forbade access into the presence of God was removed once for all. Remember, from top to bottom the veil was ripped. And it wasn't a skinny little veil either. It was thick. But Paul is referring to another barrier, the one that separated the Jew and the Gentile. The Gentiles could only come into the outer court and no further. For there was a divided wall that separated Gentiles from those who were full members of the covenant. Oh yeah, we'll let you be part of our group, but you have to stay outside. You can't come in. When Paul was thrown into jail, the one time, many times, but in Jerusalem, they had accused him of taking a Gentile into that, the court where the Jewish people could go. He hadn't done that. Speaking of the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple, on that wall, there were 13 pillars. There were 13 different inscriptions in Latin and Greek forbidding Gentiles to enter. Josephus spoke of these inscriptions. In the evacuation, excavations, excuse me, made in 1871 and 1934, two of these inscriptions were found. They read, and I quote, they were translated as, see if this sounds very inviting to you. No foreigner may enter within this barricade, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Paul continues, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has ripped this barrier down by his death. It's gone. Well, how did Christ's death bring down the wall? Well, first he abolished the law and abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. How did he do this? Well, especially since he said on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, remember, he said this in Matthew, recorded for us in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but, but to fulfill them. Christ fulfilled the moral law, keeping all its requirements, but he abolished the Jewish ceremonial law. What are, you, what are you talking about? He abolished it. In Mark, it says he made all food clean. But the requirements, the ceremonial law, what the washings, how you do certain washings, the Sabbath restrictions. And for me, I can have a bacon cheeseburger. Don't mock me. That that had been a barrier was gone. And since he fulfilled the moral law, taking away its com com condemnation, all have free access by his grace. That doesn't mean that we throw that moral law away. No. No, 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 no. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not steal. You st those are still in effect. Those are still there. But we have access to God by grace through faith. Well, how is the person now saved, made right before God? They're reconciled. How are they reconciled? According to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Go straight back to it. If you have your Bibles open, go straight back to it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this 
is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one. So, Jesus, God, abolished the impossible ceremonial code. Even the Jews couldn't keep it perfectly. He also created in Himself a new man instead of the two. A true story comes from John Reed, who was a bishop who ministered. I don't have a, I don't have a pocket right there. It's gone. He, worked, he served as a bishop, and he ministered in Australia, and he was driving a bus which contained two groups of people. He had white, white folk and aborigines, and they were young men, and he was taking them to school and other places. And like young men do, think of the South, think of anything, we separate ourselves into different groups. And he was tired of all the bickering and the sniveling, and one day he pulled it over the bus. I have to put it back on, sorry. He pulled over the bus, and he got up, and he was just fit to be tied, and he looked at the one side of the bus because they had separated themselves. He said, what color are you? White. He told him, no, you're now green. What? You're green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. And then he asked again, that side of the bus, what color are you? Green. He turned to the other side, the aboriginal side. What color are you? Black. No. From now on, you're green. You are green. Again, what color are you? Green. He thought he had it taken care of. He thought he had it licked. He thought it was good, and everything seemed resolved. But after a couple miles down the road, he hears a voice from the back. All right, light green on this side of the bus. And I'm not saying that to be funny, although it is because it's human nature. Light green on this side, dark green on this. What was needed was a new race. Reed couldn't make that happen. It was impossible. But in Ephesians, we're told that Jesus created a new man. Not one that's part Jew and part Gentile. Not one that's part Gentile and part Jew. Not one that's a Gentile that's been circumcised a.k.a. Judaizers, not one who is a Jew who has throws away his mother and father's faith and eats a cheeseburger, but a new man. The third thing that took place when Jesus destroyed the wall is just what verse 16 declares. This is rich and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What does it mean to be reconciled? Clint Arnold describes it this way. He says, the word was widely used in the Greek-speaking world to describe the restoration of a relationship after some kind of rupture through hostility or displeasure. We were separated from God. The whole world outside of Christ is separated. But Christ has made a way to be reconciled. Not only did both parties, the Jews and the Greeks, need to be reconciled with each other horizontally, but they needed to be, to be able to have that happen. They needed vertically to be reconciled. And that's exactly what happened. Warren Wiersbe writes, this was the conclusion that the apostles came to at the Jerusalem council recorded in Acts 15. Why did they gather? Why did they gather? Because Gentiles were now being part of the church and the Jewish folks, they didn't know how to react to this. 
Peter said that God put no difference between us, speaking to Jews, and them, Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. It's not a question of the Gentiles becoming a Jew to become a Christian. But hear me, but the Jew admitting he was a sinner like the Gentiles. Did you hear that? For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The same law that separated Gentile and Jew also separated men and God, and Christ bore the curse of the law. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to one spirit to the Father. What should this reconciliation and peace produce? Well, first, a close relationship with himself and the Father. But it has to bring the two groups together. Two groups formerly at enmity with one another, with one another, and this does not take place in society at large. It can only take place in the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about its people. But the giant responsibility of all this, this means that the church has to be the peacemakers and reconciliation in a separated world. And it's not always like that, is it? can't be like Christians represented in Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Picturesque Notes of Edinburgh. He wrote of two unmarried sisters. He's, I think it was a fiction, it was fictional. They lived in Scotland and they shared a single apartment, I'll say, a single room. And as people are apt and likely to do, with live in close quarters, these sisters, they had a falling out. Well, why did they have a falling out? Because as Stevenson's words were, and I'm not going to use a Scottish accent, you're not even going to try to get, tempt me to do that. He says, they had a difficulty on some point of controversial divinity. We aren't told what it was. Was it how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? I'm saying that to be a joke, but not. Why are you fighting over theological things that don't matter? Some theological things do matter. But whatever aspect of theology, the argument was so bitter that they never spoke again, ever, ever. There were no words, either kind nor spiteful, just silence. They lived in the same room, possibly because of lack of funds or because of their innate Scottish fear of scandal. They continued to live together in a single room, and they eventually, you thought War of the Roses was the first one that did this, they drew a line down the center of the room so they would stay out of each other's space. For years they coexisted in a hateful silence, and each woman's meals, baths, and family visitors were exposed to the other's unfriendly silence. Why do I say that this is a false story because, or fictional? Because a true Christian wouldn't do that, right? A true Christian wouldn't.
because those who are in Christ are commanded to forgive those who trespass against us. You have something against somebody? You need to forgive them. Does someone have something against you? You need to go and drop your gift at the altar. And whatever you can do, do it. Matthew 18, Peter, being a good Jew, knowing that he is being so above everyone else, how many times should I forgive my neighbor if he sins against me? Seven? You know Christ's words, right? Seventy times seven. Paul finishes the passages that begin with separation and now how God has provided the possibility of reconciliation to the illustration of construction. You want some great news? You're tired of this? Oh, I feel so heavy. You want some good news? Here it is. Because we've been transformed. We don't have to live in that old way. In fact, we're not called to live in that old way. We're called to live in a transformed way. And because we've been transformed into a new race, no longer Gentiles outside of Christ, maybe no longer, I don't know if we have any Jewish folks in here today, we're one in Christ. And as someone being an ethnic Jew trusts in Christ, they're now completed. We're now members of the household of God. We are now members, or we're children of God. We're children of His. We're in the family. Verse 19 declares this. He writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're reunited together. Our citizenship is now in heaven, it says in Philippians 3. And church, the only citizens in heaven are saints. There's no designation. There's no differential. They're saints. So when I have a black brother that comes to me and we speak, we are on the same plateau. We're saints. If I have a Hispanic brother that comes to me, Hispanic folks come to me who live in my house, they're saints. We're on equal footing. Elsewhere it's written, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all at one in Christ Jesus. See all the math that we have this week? And one is the main focus. One. It's family. Well, the picture now, he, now he spoke, speaks of a building, and not just any building. A building that is still under construction and a building that you can help build. Imagine that. One that's been under construction since Christ lived, died, and then rose again, and a building that's designed to house God Himself. Wait, what? It's going to house God Himself? I spoke of it earlier. We often think of a church as plaster, wood, brick, mortar, nails. But what is a church? A church is its people. A true church is its people. People who have been saved because of God's grace through faith in what Jesus has accomplished. And this building is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, meaning that they themselves laid the foundation. They weren't the foundation. They laid it. Paul himself spoke of being a wise master builder who laid a foundation which is Jesus Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians 3. The New Testament prophets were those who built on what they were taught. They were given the gift of prophecy before the canon of Scripture was completed. They said what God spoke to them. We didn't have God's final revelation yet. They completed their work given to them, and then they gave way to the evangelists, the preachers, and the teachers. Christ Jesus Himself 
being the cornerstone. He is our cornerstone. MacArthur writes, and I quote, the cornerstone was a major structural part of an ancient building. It had to be strong enough to support what it was built on it, and it had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was oriented, oriented to it. The cornerstone was the support, the orienter, the unifier of the entire building. That is what Jesus Christ is to God's kingdom, God's family, and God's building. Through Isaiah, God declared, Behold, I am laying as in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And after quoting that passage, Peter says, This precious value then is for you who believe. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just as God dwelt by His Spirit in the temple in the Old Testament, He now dwells in every individual believer, Christ in you. I want you to think about this, and I want you to maybe ask the question, why is this significant? Why is this significant? Because no Jew could look at a Gentile convert and look at them and say, you're second class. No, you're first class. You're a saint. You're one, just like I am in Christ. No Gentile convert could look at a Jewish convert and say, you're too stuck up. I don't care who you are. Can we then as Christians in the 21st century look at people of a different race or gender and say, I'm better than you? Can we say, I have more access to the things of God than you? Can we say, God loves me more than you? You know the answer to that. Though once separated from God, through the blood of Christ we have been reconciled and have been placed into His into a place where he is building in the walls of a living temple of God in which he dwells and is still building. I'll leave you with a question. Can we? Can we get along? Through Christ we can, we must, and we will.